Hello, and welcome to the Vacation Impossible podcast. Today is July 22nd, Sunday. Um, I, I pause there just because it's 20 minutes until midnight, so it's nearly going to become Monday, July 23rd, so... Uh, count that however you want. Um, I'm recording here in a Hampton Inn in Indianapolis, Indiana, because I just completed participating in the Mario Marathon for my second time, which was really quite amazing. Basically what happened is uh, Sunday morning, 11 days before the marathon, I got a message stating that it was happening. And uh, so I very quickly put together plans to come here to Indianapolis to participate. Because uh, thankfully I was I was invited to return. I booked my flights, I booked my hotel, and I even took a weekend with some help from Mindy and Mike, also a Vacation Impossible, to shoot uh, and Julian as well to shoot an 88 second trailer, which ended up being used to open the marathon, which was really quite cool. And that trailer's up on our YouTube channel now. You can find it at uh, youtube.com for slash Vacation Impossible. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I am sleep deprived. I'm really quite tired. Uh, because it was a smaller and shorter event, um, there weren't as many participants. The timing of it, it was sort of last minute. And so some people had other commitments. Um, regular participants were out of town, like Matt Guy and Orange Shirt Guy. So that added to um, sort of the, the, the core team that was there. Um, you know, they... they um, they needed to participate a little bit more. And so one of the things that I did is I took the graveyard shift on the first night. So I arrived here in Indianapolis um, the day before the event, and I stayed up till like 5.30 in the morning intentionally. Um, part of it is that because I'm coming from the Pacific time zone on the west coast of Canada, I have an advantage in that um, I'm three hours offset of them, staying up an extra three hours would basically just bring me back into line with home. So uh, I just kind of pushed that advantage. So I stayed up to about 5.30 in the morning, then went to sleep, uh, and then I woke up around 1 p.m., and the event started at 7 p.m. So that worked out fairly well, and I was able to um, stay up through the entire first night. So I was there uh, on the show from 7 p.m. on the Friday till 9 a.m. on the Saturday. And one of the interesting things that happened during that time frame is I had to um, go it alone for a while. It felt like almost two hours, but it probably wasn't that long. Uh, I'm not very certain. And um, we were playing Super Mario Odyssey, raising money for Child's Play Charity. Child's Play Charity is a charity that gives books, toys, and games to children's hospitals and domestic abuse shelters all over the world, from Vancouver to Iraq and everywhere in between, all over the United States and all over the world. Uh, and so they operate with a very low overhead. Only 6% of the money they receive goes to their administrative and advertising costs. The rest of it goes directly into helping these kids. Uh, and so it's a very efficient and great charity that, I, that I'm very happy to support and I have since the beginning of the Mario Marathon. And so I, I had the night shift, the graveyard shift, which is something I was, I was happy to do. But um, we were only playing Super Mario Odyssey for this marathon. And so the marathon only ran from Friday night to Sunday night, something in the neighborhood of 48 hours, effectively. I think it ended up being about about 50 hours, give or take, 51 hours maybe. So we were able to raise $31,000 for Child's Play Charity, which is pretty fantastic for that amount of time. And since we were only playing the one game, the idea was we were going to try and get eight 
880 moons. Uh, in the game Super Mario Odyssey, you collect moons. Uh, and so we were going to collect that many uh, as a goal. What happened during my graveyard shift is that I beat the game. We only played one game. Mario Marathon only played one game this year, and I was actually the one to beat it. So that was kind of cool. Um, and I beat it when most people were asleep. <laughs> um, but no, that was really quite cool because uh, I had imagined when they invited me here last year, and I spoke about this in podcast, I think it's episode number 10. And you can go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, but I was expecting, because I was a new guy coming to help out, that, you know, you think the junior member, the new guy, would be paying his dues. And so you'd get, like, the graveyard shift. And last time, it was actually quite nice. I had some of the prime uh, uh, times that I was there. And I had only been assigned one game, Super Mario Land, which was actually a pretty short game. So uh, I felt very fortunate last time. And so this time, I'm glad that at least in terms of the coverage I was able to offer, I think I was able to step it up a bit, which was which is nice. Because this is something I care about. And I'm really honored to be given the opportunity to participate in any way. So that was really cool. And so then after that, I did kind of slowly scale back my involvement. The second night I came back at like 3 a.m. Uh, and uh, and then obviously tonight the event wrapped up sometime around 9 p.m., I think. And so we hung out for a little bit. Then I came back to my hotel and went for some Steak and Shake. Steak and Shake is awesome. If you ever have an opportunity to try it, I highly recommend it. Their milkshakes are amazing. Partway through the marathon, I had a chocolate chip cookie dough milkshake. Fantastic. Highly recommend it. And so there is a Steak and Shake across the street from this hotel. Now, this hotel is one of three sort of clusters of hotels that are about equally distant from Brian's house, where the Mario Marathon was held this year. It's about three to four kilometers away. And so I, I picked this one partly because I like a Hilton. I was able to get a decent price. And I'm not going to lie, being across the street from a Steak and Shake kind of factored in a little bit. I don't think it was a deciding factor. If that had been removed, I probably would have made the same choice. But um, it's fantastic. Their burgers are great. And it's 24 hours, or at least this location is. And they have, a, they have an app, a mobile app on Android and I presume iOS. And so I was able to sign up. I got $3 off my first order through the app. You, you know, I just placed the app and then I walk across the street, sit down. Five minutes later, I've got my to-go order to come back to the hotel and chow down. And they do really sort of uh, thin fries, which it can be hit or miss with thin fries. If you get it and um, they're not like, they're not uh, hard then they can be really quite good. And so my first uh, time having it this trip, uh, the fries were like that. And so it was just fantastic. You can get, you know, flavor shots in your beverages, uh, you know, cherry, vanilla, I think chocolate's the third one. I just kept getting uh, cherry because I like that quite a bit. But um, that kind of stuff is really nice. And then you can order, you can customize in the app and just go pick it up. So uh, I strongly recommend Steak and Shake. Uh, one of the other things that I tried here in Indianapolis this trip is I went to Long's Donuts. And I've heard a lot of different places, like in Vancouver, there's Duffin's Donuts and uh, all these different places. And they all say, oh, like, these donuts are the best, these donuts are the best. And I think the best donuts I've had before this trip were from Krispy Kreme. But when it came to the basic glazed donut, Long's Donuts in Indianapolis was actually better. Normally, I have to disappoint people and tell them, sorry, I don't think this is as good as Krispy Kreme. But this time, I was able to say, the glazed donut is better. It wasn't a huge jump up. Uh, they call it the yeast glazed donut. But um, yeah, it was it, it was a little bit better than Krispy Kreme, which is, uh, for me, high praise. I also had sort of this Long John vanilla thing. That wasn't quite as good. So I think when it comes to the non-basic glazed donuts, Krispy Kreme's still winning the day. But Long's does very well. So that's what this trip has been about. Um, 
just other things that are going on. Uh, we recently had, and you probably would have heard about this on the previous podcast, we had gone in June uh, on a cruise to Mahogany Bay to hug a sloth as well as some other things. I came back and one of the conversations that we had had on that trip was um, how many days, uh, sea days did I have in my, in my uh, carnival sort of account, if you will. Uh, I couldn't remember. I said I stopped counting at a hundred, but um, it came up a few times, and so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna log into Carnival and I'm gonna see how many you know days I have, uh, because at 200 days is when you become diamond. And I was curious. Oh, I wonder how close I am. Uh, I'm not too concerned about reaching diamond, but I was curious. Um, and that cruise did not appear in my account, and so I looked into it. And on the Carnival site, it says that it can take up to 14 business days. For something to appear on your account, for a cruise to appear. And so that's functionally three weeks. It's three weeks less a day, so I call it three weeks. And so I waited the three weeks. I even waited a couple more days past that, and it still didn't appear. So I went in, and you can go in and um, request that they add a cruise. Say that there's a missing cruise from your VIFP profile. That's very important fun person, sort of their loyalty program. Uh, and so I did very quickly submit. It's interesting. A lot of the fields are like optional, and a lot of those fields that um, that are there that are optional, you would think are somewhat important and mandatory. But the thing is, Carnival has almost always impressed me with how they use the information that they have. I called them data mining ninjas on more than one occasion. Uh, so maybe they don't need much to know that maybe something didn't connect somewhere. But this was a cruise that I booked myself. Uh, so I'm not sure why that's not showing up. I was the primary uh, VIFP account, the primary person uh, who did that, um, it could just be one more sign that the future cruise desks were not the greatest thing because this was the trip where we went on a, we were on previous sailing like a year and a half ago, uh, Hawaii, I think, maybe Alaska. And we went up to the future cruise desk on the legend. It was actually the last sailing that there was going to be a future cruise desk. And we said, look, we would like to get the most um, inexpensive balcony. And they said, fine. They, you know, they showed us what was above and below. And they said, oh, it might be a slightly obstructed view. And I was like, no, that's fine. As long as I have a balcony I can go out on, I'm happy. And what they ended up doing was booking us a French door that doesn't open. Um, and so it's, it's just sort of like uh, you get kind of the view of a balcony if the door never opened. But there's, no, there's nothing out there. At least that's how it looked online and how it was described to me. Now, since I had booked it like a year and a half in advance, nearly two years in advance now that I think about it, uh, I didn't really go and look in it in much detail. And so it was as things were moving along, I started getting closer and I started looking at it more carefully. Realized, this is not a balcony cabin. Um, anyways, eventually there was a price drop at the same time as me calling in wanting to see about dealing with that. Um, so what I did is I called in for the price adjustment and at the same time upgraded to a proper balcony. But that was just, so that was a sign that that booking wasn't done properly. They told me a balcony and it was very clearly not a balcony and also somehow didn't link up with my VIFP. Now I submitted the request to have the missing cruise added immediately before this trip. So I haven't had a chance to check to see if it has been added, but I will update you on a subsequent podcast about what that process is like and how it goes. So far, it seems relatively simple and straightforward. I think the message that I have for you here is if you've cruised with Carnival, double-check your VIFP account to make sure that all of your sailings are truly listed because uh, clearly it's possible that they can get missed somehow. Um, so that's just something that if you do cruise with Carnival, maybe be aware of. 
other things that we have going on, uh, we are hoping to go to Portland Retro Gaming Expo in October. We haven't purchased our tickets yet because they haven't formally announced that Pat Contry will be there. And so as a big fan of Pat Contry and Ian Ferguson, uh, the CU podcast, the Not So Common podcast, Pat the NES Punk, um, that's a big part of why I go. So I'm not going to buy my tickets until that is 100% official, uh, is currently the plan. If they're not there, would I still go? I don't know. I'll have to think about it. But as long as they're going, my plan is to be there. And speaking of Pat Contry, uh, I just want to say thank you to Pat, because during the Mario Marathon, I tweeted at him requesting a retweet, sort of a signal boost to let people know about the Mario Marathon. And his audience makes more sense for that than Vacation Impossible. I think Vacation Impossible's audience, um, you know, they can be generous and charitable, but they're not necessarily into gaming necessarily. We're about vacations and traveling of all kind. And so, sure, a subset will also be interested you know, in video games, uh, but I don't know how much of the, our audience that is. Whereas since he really talks about video games, that's his thing, primarily. Every now and then I'll talk about like wrestling or politics or something, but like 90% of his core um, content is about video gaming. His audience is a better fit. And so the fact that he retweeted me, I'm very appreciative of. So uh, thank you, Pat Contry, for retweeting for the Mario Marathon. That probably contributed to the $31,000 we were able to raise over the last uh, 48 hours or so. Uh, so thank you. That is absolutely appreciated. Uh, one thing, after this trip, I believe I have six vacation days left. I can combine them with other things. With a weekend, I also get flex days, so I'm not entirely certain what other trips I'm going to be taking this year. Portland Retro Gaming Expo shouldn't need any vacation time because I can use a flex day for that. And coincidentally, that event happens when I'm supposed to be getting one of those days anyways. Uh, a flex day basically means you work an extra half hour every day, and then you get uh, a Friday off every three weeks. It's a pretty good deal, especially for people who want to travel more. So if you're able to do something like that or some other form of compressed work week, uh, that's one way that you can travel more. In um, a previous podcast and in a YouTube clip, I talked about how I was able to go on six cruises in 2016, and that was a big part of that. So if you have that flexibility at your employer, uh, it might be worth looking into and understanding the rules of so that you can maximize that to your advantage if that's something you're interested in, to travel more. And of course, Vacation Impossible, we believe that traveling more is good. We think that travel broadens the mind. It introduces you to new experiences and new cultures, and you can have fun. And a big part of it is when I come back from a, a vacation, sometimes I feel more energized. Uh, and also, uh, I feel like I have a fresh perspective on my own life, on my own house, on how I do things and think. And maybe I've discovered something on the journey that I'm like, you know, that's a great idea. Uh, so, you know, maybe I will organize my house differently or I'll have a different kind of food or maybe I'll just have a different way of looking at things that might be more positive. So these are some of the great benefits of, of traveling. And so that's part of why I think that the more you can travel, the better. One of the things I've heard is that uh, travel is one of the things you pay for that makes you richer. And I, I really like that. I think that that's a, a fantastic thing. Anything we can do to encourage more travel, to make it um, interesting, to make it cheaper, to make it different in some way, that is absolutely why we do what we do with, you know, whether it's our podcast here, our YouTube channel, Instagram, whatever, uh, Tumblr, that's a big part of what we're all about. So that having been said, uh, I haven't made my annual trip to Ensenada yet. Since 2013, my first cruise ever went to Ensenada with Burton, 
And of course, there's videos on YouTube about that. Uh, and so I've basically annually gone back and done that four day sale out of Long Beach on either the Carnival Inspiration or Carnival Imagination. And it goes to Catalina Island, which is technically part of California. And it goes to Ensenada and also has a sea day as well. For someone looking for their first cruise, I think that's an ideal cruise. It's just long enough that you get to whet your appetite and a taste of everything. It's enough time that you'll eat in the main dining room, that you will eat you know, on Lido, but you'll try the Pizza Pirate, that you'll probably go to the comedy club at least once. Hopefully you'll go to the piano bar at least once. You'll go to a couple ports. One, maybe you'll walk around. Maybe one, you'll do an excursion. And it's it's a very nice sampler. And I like doing that. Um, you know, I, I did it one time for $24, the $24 cruise, which I've talked about before. And again, there's YouTube videos about that. So that was one of the times that I was enticed back. But Long Beach is close enough to Vancouver that the flights are relatively inexpensive and the time investment is relatively inexpensive. It's a whole lot easier to do than flying all the way to Florida. Uh, so it's easy to do. And on the $24 cruise, it, I, it was based on a website glitch. And so because of how it worked, I only had 10 days between booking and when the cruise began. So I had to book my flight, you know, uh, shuttle, all that kind of stuff, figure it out in 10 days. So when the Mario Marathon this year comes along and I had 11 days notice, uh, this was old hat to me. I had I had a lot of experience. I'd done these things before. Uh, and so it was really quite easy to plan. It really took less than a day to get the hotel and the flights figured out. And then just some basic research from there. And of course, shooting that, that commercial video we made uh, was quite nice. So uh, might go back to Ensenada. Not sure. Isabella, who appeared on the last podcast, uh, has also expressed an interest in doing some sort of a cruise in early December. And she had mentioned possibly sailing out of Long Beach again. Uh, she doesn't really like the idea of the three or the four days, so it sounds like what she was suggesting is the Mexican Riviera again, which ironically, we had done that on the Splendor back in February. I think that she wants to go and do that sailing again. Uh, so it's possible that that might be what we do, and uh, I would be fine with that. Uh, depending on the timing of it, maybe I'll put my Ensenada cruise possibly as um, close to that. Now, the Splendor doesn't do those four days, so it wouldn't be necessarily a perfect back-to-back. -back. I might have a day to kill in Long Beach, but it's a very nice Hilton there. Long Beach is very walkable. The Hyatt's fairly nice as well when they're not undergoing renovations. So I don't know. We'll see uh, what comes of that. Um... Another thing that we've been talking about as a future travel idea is in 2019, the Vista-class ship Panorama is going to have its maiden voyage out of Long Beach. And the first voyage is going to be one of those four days to Ensenada, but the voyage immediately after that is going to be a full Mexican Riviera. So we're thinking about doing a back-to-back -back on that so that we can be on her maiden voyage and hopefully bring you the sights and the sounds, video pictures, reviews, insights into the brand new ship from her first sailing. That's something that we'd be very excited to do, but there's a lot of different factors that go into that. Uh, Mindy, for example, has uh, is going to be starting a new job soon, uh, and that's going to come with its own vacation rules and things like that. It seems like it will make it easier for her to travel, but that remains to be seen as she hasn't fully started yet. So we'll see what comes out of her orientation and that sort of thing. Uh, so that might determine whether or not she's coming along, whether Julian's coming along, uh, or if it's just me and Sam, or whoever. Uh, but that's sort of what we're looking at for future trips. We travel a lot. I travel a lot. Again, I did six cruises in 2016, and I also that year did Portland Retro Gaming Expo and other trips. So I travel a lot. I think as an average that I do some form of travel every other month. 
So I thought that it would be good to recommend t the top five travel apps. I recently got a brand new phone. Unfortunately, my BlackBerry Priv died. It no longer had the ability to make sound. I could listen to phone calls, but it, the, the ringer and the speakerphone was kaput. And then Instagram stopped working, and uh, I was eventually able to uh, sort of re-up and get a discount on a new phone with my carrier, so I got a new Sony Xperia that actually shoots in 4K. So the camera's a nice upgrade. Some things are better, some things are worse. But one of the things I had to do as part of setting up this new phone is downloading apps and deciding what apps do I want and what apps do I really not use. So here are the top five travel apps that you should have on your phone before any trip that you take sort of out of state or province. So first off, you need a ride hailing app. Now, you probably already have one on your phone unless you live in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. Vancouver is the largest city in North America that does not have ride hailing yet. So Uber and Lyft are not in Vancouver, Victoria, or the rest of that province. So for me, part of my pre-trip preparation on my phone is to download both Uber and Lyft. Lyft is generally a little bit cheaper, but Uber generally has wider coverage. Some regions, for example, I think the first time I flew to Houston, um, Lyft wasn't allowed at the airport yet, but Uber was. Now, since then, Lyft has been granted access, um, but that kind of thing can come up. So Uber is obviously, you know, it's sort of the Coca-Cola and Lyft is sort of the Pepsi in terms of its market share. And as a result, availability of coverage and rides, jurisdictional issues, Uber has the advantage there. So normally I ju I've just used Uber. I've traveled in a lift with Sam before, but uh, for myself in terms of ride hailing, I've only ever used Uber. Uh, I have a four-star rating as a, as a, as a uh, customer, for whatever that's worth. Um, but And I've said this many times. My worst experience in an Uber or a Lyft is light years beyond my best experience in a taxi or a cab. So I find, by and large, Uber and Lyft to be a better option. It's almost always cheaper for a single person. When there's multiple people, it's generally also the best, but sometimes cabs might be better depending on the capacity um, and the specific region. Before you go, I recommend checking the fare estimator for taxis, Uber, and Lyft uh, so you have some sense of what the cost is. And particularly if you're going to be traveling from an airport, look for hotels that have free shuttles or look at airport shuttles as possibly more cost effective than those, depending on where you're going. Uh, and so I like to set it up in advance, make sure that I'm logged in uh, and make sure that my credit card is added as a payment method. Because when you're roaming, like, for example, as a Canadian in the United States, you want to use as little data that you have to pay for as possible. Mindy in Cozumel turned on her mobile data to send one email and she was charged something like $94 in roaming by uh, her carrier Freedom. And she spoke with them on Twitter and, uh, you know, tried to explain because the cellular services weren't working. She couldn't make a call. And there was a serious issue that needed immediate attention. And that was basically the only way she was able to address it. And normally when, as a Canadian, you go into the United States, you get a text message on your phone indicating the rates. But when she went into Mexico, no such message was received. And she didn't plan on using her phone in Mexico at all, so she hadn't pre-researched the rates. And it turns out the rates were astronomically insane, like $20 per meg. And the only reason that it, it held to like $94 or whatever it was is because it's mandated by law in Canada that the overages can't go above like $100 without specific authorization. So it capped it. But it's absolutely ridiculous. And she, she, she tried explaining that to them that, look, 
you know, uh, also she was supposed to have roaming data. She didn't know that that was only for the United States. So there was three issues there. One, they never explained the limitations on the roaming data, that it was U.S. only, that it wouldn't work in Mexico. Two, she was never made aware of the rates like you are when you enter other countries, generally speaking. And three, the cellular phone connection to make a phone call, which would have been way cheaper to resolve this issue, was not working. Even after pointing out those three things on Twitter and trying to talk to them by phone, um, they did very little for her. I think they knocked it down by like $5 or something, despite all of these things that they did to create the situation where she had no choice. And the fact is, when you get those little add-on packages, it drops it to a ridiculously small percentage of what she was charged. So they should have been, I think, willing to go retroactive and say, you know, we'll charge you as if you had had that add-on as a goodwill gesture because, like, the cellular services weren't working, for example, or we never told you of the rates, or we, we misled you about your package. Um, and so she initially phoned in, and the person wasn't helpful, and she requested a supervisor callback. She, they said the supervisor callback would take three to five business days, which I think is unacceptable. I think three days maximum is, is kind of acceptable for that situation. I understand they probably don't have supervisors sitting on their hands waiting for, you know, a callback to do, but uh, three days, I think, is, is enough. So after five or six days goes by, she hears nothing. She starts contacting them on Twitter. And Twitter says, well, it's a legitimate charge, so we're not calling you back. And, and that was frustrating because what if there was more to the story? What if, you know, what if there was a service issue? What if there was a customer issue? What if there were unrelated things she wanted to discuss? The fact that they weren't willing to speak to her, I think, is horrible. And that's a very bad sign. Now, now, fortunately, uh, I have this. I have the same provider. My experiences have been okay. The system is is um, the service is cheap, and it works all, almost all the time. But when I have to deal with a person to resolve an issue, I do find it very difficult. Uh, uh, in the past, the call center, I had trouble understanding them. I think since Shaw has bought Freedom Mobile. Uh, they now have call centers in Canada, and so the language barrier has been reduced. But it still seems like dealing with people in store uh, don't know as much as you would hope that they would know. They don't know what phones are compatible that they might not be selling themselves. I think they should have a database of that, an index, something where they could answer that question. When I went in to buy this new phone, they had I walked in and they had like this iPhone display with... Uh, all these stands that iPhones should have been on and none of them had phones on them. They were just loose cables and empty stands. And then I walk over and I'm looking at some of the lower priced models of other phones and they had five phones on the wall with display models, price and everything that were not available. They were out of stock. And I was upset because one of them actually looked pretty good. It was lower cost and a really good camera. And, uh, and so I, so the guy comes up to me and says, oh, none of these are available. I said, well, why are they not available? He says, well, we're sold out. Why do you still have them on display? That's misleading. I've been wasting all my time considering these and looking at these. And frankly, it's false advertising. You can't say that there's something at a low price. And when someone goes to buy it, say, no, you can't have that. All there is is the higher price. I'm fairly certain that's against the law. At the very least, it's absolutely unethical. And he says, well, we can't just take them off the wall. What will we replace them with? And I said, you got your iPhone display over here, and all the phones have been ripped out of it. So they had nothing to say about that. I mentioned it on Twitter. On Twitter, they said they talked to the store, and they said that was unacceptable. But that's some of the inconsistent service you get with Freedom Mobile, which is a real shame. Because there's like the technical service and the price is really compelling, but the customer service, unfortunately, has been really lacking. So if you're okay doing self-service as much as possible... Um, 
then that then that can work for you and be a good option but it can be frustrating and the really unfortunate thing is they didn't make it right when it went wrong here years ago i had a data overage of like 18 cents that the that the person um at the call center said was too low to correct which i think is ridiculous um and i eventually reached out to them on twitter and i think like the ceo's executive assistant contacted me and they made it right that time so my personal experience has been a little bit better, but uh, I'm wondering if the the quality of the service on Twitter, for example, has degraded. Um, so you know, use at your own risk. I I may have gotten a little off topic there, a bit of a tangent. Um, so another app, the, the the second app on my top five apps to travel is the app for your airline. This can be really useful for a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, I I do like to have paper boarding passes. For example, batteries don't run out on paper. Uh, and you never know what's going to happen with travel. And as my experience in the Calgary airport taught me, sometimes you have to hold on to your uh, your first flight's boarding pass in order to go to your second without getting kicked out of the airport. Uh, that time an RCMP officer was advocating on my behalf, saying, you know, who would hold on to that? He clearly just got off that plane. Why can't you let him through? And the airline flunky basically overruled the RCMP officer. This is a federal cop. And just some person who works for an airline said no. Uh, and so I, I do recommend you get a paper printout, whether you print it yourself or get it at the airport, but having the airline app is good because that is a backup because let's say you lose that, you have it in the app as well. Uh, you can look up the current information. Is it boarding? Is it on time? Has it been delayed? Uh, you know, you can, you can see all that. Has my TSA pre-check been approved? Uh, and on board, uh, generally when you connect to the onboard Wi-Fi, the app will update with your connection information, including perhaps the gate you're landing at and maybe the gate you need to take off on your connecting flight for. And uh, I was flying Delta on this trip, and the Delta app is very good for this. The online check-in, the updated information, when things got delayed, when, when my first flight got delayed to the point where it would have been one minute late, than previously advertised, it gave me the option of changing my flights for free in the app. I declined it because I figured one minute was going to make it a big impact on the transfer. But the fact that it offered and it was all there, ready to go, really solid app with Delta. Um, so your mileage may vary in different airlines, but uh, it often will connect to like the in-flight entertainment potentially as well. Uh, Delta has free messaging. Uh, they have iMessage, Facebook Messenger, and best of all for me, WhatsApp. And so um, I, I find that the apps sometimes help that connection process work more smoothly. Um, and so I do recommend getting the app for any airlines you're flying on, because sometimes that's how you're going to find out about a delay or a change before other people. Uh, the app seems to know before I get an email, before there's an announcement uh, or a text message. And so I find that uh, that's a very good idea. And if you're looking to change and upgrade seats, uh, the app can help facilitate that. Number three is a map app. So you're going to want something like Google Maps or Maps.me. Both of those look, work very well in offline mode. In Maps.me, you can go in and select the specific cities, and it'll just download the whole map for that city. And so from a prep side of things, I like that. Uh, in Google Maps, you actually have to go in and basically zoom into a box for the area that you want uh, to download as an offline map. Uh, so you don't know if you're getting the whole city. You need to be careful to make sure that you select the box that is all the areas you're likely to want to know about. Um, but both of them work fairly well. And Google Maps generally comes preloaded on Android. So 
On my previous phone, I had both, but I just used Google Maps most of the time. It worked fine. So I'm just sticking with that for now because it's preloaded. And unfortunately, that means I can't uninstall it. So I might as well just use that. But Maps.me works fantastically well as well. And the, and the downloading of the Maps process works way easier for Maps.me. Number four on the top five apps for travel is a podcast app. I recommend um, Pocket Casts if you have an Android device. It's about $4, and I think it's well worth it. One of the things I love to do when I travel is listen to podcasts, and I hope you do too, particularly Vacation Impossible's podcast. But Pocket Casts allows you to download them, and you can subscribe to different podcasts, and you can set different settings for each one. So, for example, I subscribe to the CU podcast and the Not So Common podcast, and I have it set up to automatically download when new episodes come out. I also have the Rachel Maddow podcast, but I only download that when I feel the interest or the need. So that's not automatically downloading because she puts out, it's basically an audio version of her show, and that comes out uh, every, every weekday, basically. And I don't need to download all that like when I'm at home. But if I'm going to be flying or if I'm going to be on a cruise ship where I have limited access to data, having that kind of stuff is, is pretty fantastic. Uh, so one of the things I did on this trip was I was playing Mario Odyssey on my Nintendo Switch while I was listening to podcasts and uh, on the plane. That was really quite nice. When I'm on the cruise ship, I love going to uh, having a deck chair in a shady part, either on your balcony or somewhere on Lido, uh, and then listening to a podcast with a wonderful view of the ocean, and it's nice and warm, but you're not getting sunburned. I love it. So I really recommend Pocket Casts or some other podcast app that is easy to use. And particularly when a podcast comes out and I'm having a port day, you know, there's the, odd day, there's the odd time in like Honduras or Mexico or something where I'm like hanging off the back of the ship with my phone trying to get the last little bit of a podcast downloaded from like a mall that I'm scamming on their Wi-Fi for. Or like in Hawaii, I'd be walking by a store and trying to download it. Um, the Pocket Cast does it automatically. So when you connect, it'll check and it'll download. And so you get back to the ship and you're like, hey, that's great. Um, and that works a little bit easier. And you can also sort of look in on it while it's doing that, make sure it downloaded, that sort of thing. So you might want to be like, okay, I just need another minute to finish this download. Um, but I found since I tried Pocket Cast, which was recommended by Sam, thank you very much, uh, it's made that whole thing much easier. One thing is I used to try to download podcasts without an app. And it used to be easier than it is now. But a lot of uh, podcast interfaces have dropped the download the podcast button. So you have to go into the code and find the MP3 and download that. And that's I had to do that in Hawaii in a Nordstrom's or something. And that was just frustrating as all, all can be. So pay one time, get Pocket Cast or something similar. Maybe there's free options out there that'll work well for you. Uh, but I think that's an important um, thing to make your travel go easier. Because let me tell you, listening to a podcast makes your flight go way faster in my experience. And the last fifth app that I recommend for travel is a game of some kind. And particularly a game that doesn't need Wi-Fi. So, for example, uh, one game I like uh, playing is called Balls, uh, spelled with a Z. Um, but you can also get, I think, Angry Birds 2, a couple other things. Um, make sure that it's a game that works without any data connection at all. Because the key to that is you can use it on the plane or on a cruise ship. And in particular on a plane, there's the point where they say, 
you know, put away your large electronic devices, but you can have your handheld electronic device, which is your phone. And this is largely during the takeoff and landing times. And for some people, that's the more stressful part of a flight. You're concerned about the takeoff and landing. That's when the, the, the plane is going to be sort of moving the most. Uh, it's where people fear the most, I think, even though flying is incredibly safe. And so having a, a game to play and distract yourself with as you're going through that, uh, I think is a good thing. And so I would recommend a game. Also, if you end up just having to wait anywhere, that kind of a thing can really help make the process go better. It takes you kind of out of the moment, so you're not just there thinking about the worst thing constantly, you know, uh, awfulizing, imagining the worst. It, it takes you out of the moment a little bit, and then you can kind of refresh when, when you're done playing the game. And so I do have um, a couple bonus apps. If you're cruising, you're going to want to download the app of the cruise line. And, and so in our case, we cruise with Carnival. We get the Carnival Hub app, and that's fantastic. It gives us a schedule. It, we can check our account. We can message each other at a nominal fee. That's fantastic. So if where you're going has an app, if it's like a cruise ship or something like that, I highly recommend you get the app as well. And again, download these before you go so that you're not wasting crucial vacation time trying to download something on Wi-Fi that might not be very strong. And another, um, I, I, uh, it's a bonus because I think this is obvious and most phones come with it, is something that can view both Word and Excel documents. I like to plan ahead quite a bit. I have an itinerary that I normally build in Microsoft Word and I normally have what I call as a distances file. What I like to do is when I'm going to be staying at a hotel, I like to look at some of the nearby things in advance because on those early road trips with John and other people, we'd get to a place, we'd check into the hotel and we'd be like, oh, I'm hungry. What do you want to eat? Well, I don't know. What do you want to eat? Well, I'm not really sure what's around here. I don't know what's around here either. And so then we might hop on the Wi-Fi or something else and go looking for stuff. And that's a bunch of time you're wasting and it's kind of stressful and you're kind of indecisive and all that kind of stuff. So what I do now is for every hotel I stay at, I look at like 10 restaurants and 10 things to do in the area. And I put it on an Excel sheet so I can list the address, what it is, and the distance. And so if we have a car, it'll be how long it takes to drive. If we don't, how long it takes to walk so that we know what's practical. And so now when I'm in a hotel and I think, oh, I'm hungry. Well, here's 10 options. Which one sounds good? Keeping in mind, you know, the Red Lobster is 16 minutes away, but, you know, the Hardee's is 10 and the Steak and Shake is 2. How, how you know, what, what do you want and how, how long are you willing to wait for it? And that makes that a whole lot easier. So you're going to need something to view these files. Now, you could download the Microsoft Word and Excel app. However, I found those to be incredibly difficult. They don't open sometimes. They give you cryptic error messages that just say, can't open the file right now, try later. Why would later be any different from now? Uh, and like you have trouble saving, it tries to convert, um, just all sorts of problems. But the Google Sheets and the Google Docs app that comes preloaded on Android phones, they actually work fairly well. They're good for opening and viewing and minor edits. If you're going to be creating a document from scratch or making major edits, you might want to try tangling with the Microsoft Office product. Uh, but by, by and large, it just works. And uh, so I, I would recommend having something, an application to view Word documents and Excel sheets, if that's part of your preparation. 
Um, as well, I think having a PDF viewer is really good because a lot of things that you will be looking at in your phone as relating to your travel, maybe it's a menu or information on a hotel, a shuttle, a something, a lot of files online are as PDFs. And so you need a viewer to watch that uh, or to you need, an, uh, you need a viewer to read that, open it, look at it. And sometimes that's built into the app. So like the menus that you see in the Carnival Hub app are actually PDFs and they save to your phone. So you could look directly at them, but having a PDF viewer makes all of that work better. So there's three bonuses there, but a lot of them I think you're going to have preloaded except for your cruise app. So those are the top five travel apps that I recommend to have on your phone before you go. But I'm curious, what apps do you think are essential other than those top five? If you are watching this on YouTube, please let me know in the comments below. Otherwise, you can reach out to us at, uh, at VacayImpossible on Twitter or send us an email to team at vacationimpossible.ca and let us know uh, what apps did we miss? What apps do you think are absolutely essential? And where did we go wrong? Did you think that we don't need to get all of those apps? Do you think it's ridiculous to bring a game or something else? Uh, let us know. We'd be curious, what are other people using? Because we also want to learn and uh, expose ourselves to new ideas as well. Speaking of games, we like to um, travel light, but uh, having a game to play while you travel can be quite nice. So just thinking about some different methods of mobile gaming. Now, I really don't want you to bring so many games or such an engrossing game that you're not open to what's going on around you and you're spending all your time in your room just playing the game because you can do that at home. But at the same time, having a game to distract yourself if you're having to wait, you know, maybe you're having to wait for your number to be called on a pager for a restaurant or you're waiting for your flight, your flight's been delayed, you're on the plane and it's taking off and you want a distraction, something like that. Having a game to play is good, but you don't want it to be too engrossing. And what kind of mobile games are good? So the Nintendo Switch, for example, is a portable system. So you can play full AAA title games on the go. And that's fine. It takes up a fair bit of space. It charges on a USB-C connection, which is becoming more popular with phones. So you might not need an additional charger. But I would recommend bringing games that you can play in little snippets. Super Mario Odyssey works relatively well for that. Mario Kart is fantastic for that. Um, Bomberman things of that nature, and those are all games you can play without a connection to the internet. Um, but I don't know that you want to be bringing something huge like Breath of the Wild or L.A. Noir, something that's engrossing and that you're going to want to play and play and beat extended missions on. You're going to want something that you can pick up and play easily. And so another system that's great for that is the 3DS. And on 3DS, there's a Mario Kart, there's a Smash Brothers, uh, there's a lot of games like that that are pretty good to pick up and go. But if you don't want a whole separate system, there is games on tablets and phones. Uh, again, on the phone, I, I, I like the game Balls, spelt with a Z. Uh, there's Angry Birds 2. Those both work without Wi-Fi. For those things that work with Wi-Fi, Pokemon Go and um, Mario Run are both pretty good. They're relatively, you know, you can play them in snippets. Pokemon Go is also nice because there's a, there's a, there's a traveling dimension to it. And there's often a lot of Pokestops and lures that have been dropped at airports because people are waiting around. And so that helps the time go a lot faster. And on a tablet, you can be playing Fruit Ninja or, um, there's Hill Climb Racing. Um, there's, uh, there's Halo, um, uh, there's a Halo game uh, for the Surface that's quite good. So my general preference is try to just have a couple of games on the things you're bringing already. But having a 3DS or a Switch 
If that works for you, all the more power to you. But just really think about the kind of games you're bringing. Don't play an RPG while you're traveling unless you're just going to do some simple grinding because you want to look up and enjoy the world around you. You want to be able to put it down in a moment's notice. Suddenly your table's ready at the restaurant. Suddenly your, your flight is boarding. You know, uh, Suddenly you're getting on the cruise ship, whatever it is. It's something you want to be able to interrupt quickly and then completely focus yourself on the moment. So uh, I have to issue a minor correction off of a previous podcast. And it was, we were talking about the carnival stock and the shareholder benefits that you get from it. And Isabella was telling a bit of a story about the experience that she had on her most recent cruise with us in June on the Miracle, where she didn't get the credit despite having uh, faxed in the document and made efforts to follow up with her PVP. So the disclaimer to that was, uh, that was just her experience on that cruise. Her previous cruises, they did get the credit without any difficulty. Um, and so she was expressing her personal opinion. And I was trying to counterbalance that with any facts. For example, uh, she said that she thought the stock wasn't performing very well. And in that video, I actually put up a graphic that showed the performance of the stock over the last while so that people could see it had dipped, but it looked like it had a recovery. So that was just one person's opinion. It wasn't an official endorsement or recommended advice of like Vacation Impossible and the whole team doesn't necessarily share that. However, she's also the only shareholder on the Vacation Impossible team. So we were just sharing that particular advice. But we may have been slightly inaccurate and misleading in one part of that video and podcast clip. And that was where I said that the shareholder benefit differs from line to line. And I was not entirely precise in what I was saying. Basically, uh, the differences uh, are regional. So the Australia cruise lines versus the North America cruise lines versus the UK cruise lines versus the European cruise lines, for one thing, they all operate in different currencies. And so the amount that you get is different. And I think it reflects those currencies, but those currencies are constantly in flux and the shareholder benefit is announced annually. So I'm not sure exactly what goes into it, um, but your, your mileage will vary. That having been said... On a princess cruise versus a carnival cruise in North America, you will get the same shareholder benefit. So I apologize and I regret the error. And uh, I just want to say thanks to the people who pointed that out to us. We do, um, you know, want to keep things as accurate as possible, but we also do spend a lot of time expressing opinions. And so please take opinions as just one perspective. And we're trying to show perspectives that maybe you hadn't thought of, but that also means you're probably not necessarily always going to agree. And we don't expect you to, and we don't ask you to, um, but we do hope that people will keep an open mind as much as possible. And I'm going to do a thing where I react to the comments. So on the video clip regarding Carnival shareholder credit, we received a number of comments from someone named Diane, uh, who was very critical of the video. And I want to take a moment to look at those comments, react to them, and respond to them, because she took a lot of time to put her feedback down. And I wanted to acknowledge that. I want to thank Diane for taking the time to do that. And I want to see about addressing some of her concerns to make sure that we're hopefully providing a broad range of opinions here on Vacation Impossible. So she says, this is a bunch of bunk, which I don't think is particularly helpful. Um, but then she goes on to say, we've never in all our times that we've used our onboard credit, have we ever had trouble getting it applied immediately to our account? 
And so I think this is one uh, source of confusion. When Isabella was talking about the fact that she had difficulty getting the credit, it was only on that one sailing. On previous sailings, they did get the credit without this problem. But at the same time, if it happened to her this one time, there's the potential that it could happen to other people, and we think people should know that in advance, if for no other reason than to take extra steps to make sure that doesn't happen. Yes, we always take our confirmation, but we have never needed it. And so that's kind of interesting. Isabella recommended that people print out the confirmation that they were shareholders in case there is an issue. It'll help them resolve it on board. I think that's very good advice, but it's also interesting that Diane says that she's never needed it. And so I don't know that it would occur to people to do that, you know, if it was something that they, they didn't really need. It's, it's sort of a belt and suspenders backup plan, which is not a bad idea. And we appreciate the suggestion from Diane on that. We've had a great return on our stock and we feel it has been a great investment. And I understand that the Carnival stock has paid dividends fairly consistently. And you can go on Google yourself and decide. You can look at its valuation and fluctuations over time as to whether or not that's the right stock for you. She says, the stock benefits are the same for all lines that Carnival owns. And Carnival is the cru cruise lines is the same as Princess, H.A., Cunard, etc. And again, it's not about lines. It's about region. So it's not the same in, on a carnival cruise in Australia versus a carnival cruise in North America versus a, you know, a Costa cruise in Europe. So it is regional, not lines, but it is not the same across regions. For one thing, it can't be because they use different currencies. She says that they have no more or less say in what the parent company does than any other company. And we weren't trying to suggest that there was an unusual arrangement between the parent and the child companies of that structure. Uh, it was just the fact that the parent is called Carnival, but that, but that doesn't mean it's exactly the same thing as Carnival Cruise Lines, which is also one subsidiary. That's all we were trying to clarify. We weren't trying to say there was anything unusual about that. A further comment from Diane. Uh, what I'm saying is I think things can happen, of course. There can be glitches in any system. However, she was complaining about not being able to use both persons' credit on the same cruise. She should have learned that info before she bought the stock. This is another source of confusion that I want to clarify. Um, so she is married to a person who owns the stock. And she was thinking about buying an additional 100 shares under her name uh, on the thought that they could both claim the credit. And then she did do the research and did find out that two people in the same cabin, they can't both claim the shareholder credit. It can only be applied once per cabin. And when she discovered that, she didn't buy the stock. So she was actually doing exactly what you're suggesting here, is looking in advance. However, part of that research was including things like YouTube, where this issue wasn't really being discussed. And so that's part of why we wanted to make people aware of that limitation on YouTube. Because if you search Carnival Shareholder Credit, when we did on YouTube, we didn't see much that covered the subject at all. And so we wanted to help get that information out there because we that's exactly what we don't want to have happen is someone go out and buy a stock for whatever reason. But if part of it is they're expecting to stack or double dip or whatever you want to call it, uh, the benefit... Uh, of being a shareholder twice in one cabin and then they go through all of that difficulty and expense and find out they don't get it that's not that's not good and so we want to help prevent that from happening by getting information out there of course you should have taken the email on the cruise that is a no-brainer i take copies of everything with me just in case as should everyone yes you're supposed to fax the info in before the cruise but we've never had to call to see if it was received. Why didn't she think that? She just seems rather clueless. Well, 
I don't think it's necessary to call people names. I don't think that's helpful to the conversation, but I do think that there are some points in here worth discussing. And so um, it's interesting that this person will print out everything for their trips, uh, but they wouldn't call to confirm a fax has been received. Uh, because the first thing seems to be sort of a little bit of redundancy, a little bit of carefulness. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And yet they think calling to make sure a fax has been received is going too far. Unfortunately, the way that fax machines work is you don't really know if they've been received. Uh, you know, in, in, my, in my professional life, we receive a lot of faxes and we get a lot of calls to confirm. And a lot of times when they call to confirm, we actually haven't received the fax. If a fax machine runs out of paper, uh, if two are coming in at the same time, if there's a paper jam, if there's just some, if, if the fax machine just isn't working quite right, or maybe the transmission will come through and it's, and it's, there's like, it's blurry because maybe the feed is skipped or something. There's so many things that can go wrong with faxes. And you don't know if it's being received by a machine or if it's just automatically being captured in a data sense and stored or emailed emailed somewhere, as a lot of systems do. Uh, and that's part of the problem with faxing. And I think that's part of the point Isabella was making is that they're not very reliable. And so she was trying to take additional responsibility by calling in to verify that it had been received. And it was just this particular PVP of hers uh, never got back to them to answer that question was unreachable and unavailable. So that having been said, I want to address this idea about taking a printout of everything with you. Um, I took my boarding pass and my itinerary printed out, but that's about all the paper I really bring along with me on trips now. I think it must have been, it's been years. It maybe was 2010 was the last time I would do things like print out a confirmation for a hotel or, or something like that. Uh, the simple fact is, is that um, you've got email confirmations that are sent to you. You, you know, you, you'll probably have a phone. Most places have some Wi-Fi. And even if not, in all of my travels, and I've been traveling a lot, we're talking, you know, probably every other month on average for years and years, I can't remember the last time that I was asked for a piece of paper that wasn't a boarding pass for a flight or a cruise ship. I just can't think of it. And so it, this person thinks, of course, you should print everything. And I don't think that that's com the commonly accepted practice. Um, back in, you know, 2010 or 2005, when I did print out these things, I'd go up to a hotel and I'd hand over a printout of a, con a confirmation and people were polite, but I could see the look on their face where they were like, this is weird. Like, why, why did they hand me this? They don't, you know, trust us, whatever. Um, you know, I, I've never gone to a hotel and needed to provide a piece of paper, for example. Um, and so maybe sometimes if you pre-buy tickets to an amusement park, it's got a barcode on it and it'll be very clear, should you print and bring this? But from Isabella's experience through buying the stock and talking to her, her PVP, no one ever told her to print and bring it. Had anyone mentioned it, she sure would have. So why would, why would you think to, to, to print out everything? Uh, you know, that's going to be expensive. If you're printing from home, the ink is going to be expensive. You're wasting paper and wasting ink is bad for the environment. I can see tons of reasons why people wouldn't think to do this. And that's part of why we recommend they do for this one thing is because I don't think many people would realize that. And if you already realize that, then the tip might not apply to you. And I think that's okay. I think we can give advice to people and sometimes it's going to apply to you and sometimes it won't. says, we have never in all the cruises we've taken had any trouble getting our stock credit applied after faxing, usually within 48 hours. And again, Isabella's previous cruises, she didn't have a problem either. 
But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. And it did happen. She was telling the truth, whatever you might believe. And so we wanted to get the word out about the truth and let people make more informed decisions. It doesn't mean that you don't buy the stock or, you know, it doesn't mean you have to print it out every time. But at least we've done what we can to get the information out there and expose you to that idea that maybe, you know, you'll take that step and you won't run into that difficulty because we want to save you time. We believe vacation time is precious and shouldn't be wasted resolving issues like this. And she says, by the way, I have a great PVP and we apply for the stock our, uh, the stock onboard credit ourselves. And that's fine. Um, I don't know what Isabella is to blame about having a PVP that might not be great. It sounds like through that experience, she was coming to realize that her personal vacation planner with Carnival might not have been that great. So maybe she can look into changing it. But she didn't know until something went wrong that this person, you know, might not have been taking good care of her. Sometimes you have to learn by doing. Or someone does. The first person does. The canary in the coal mine has to. Somebody, the guinea pig, choose your metaphor. And so... She found that experience and she was trying to share the information. And frankly, I don't think there was anything wrong with trying to do that. And another comment, she seems somewhat dense and ill-informed. That's just insulting. Uh, and that adds nothing to the conversation. I don't know why someone would take the time to write that. Um, but the way things work on YouTube is quite interesting. Uh, YouTube has no way of telling a insulting comment from a good one. And YouTube values interactions. The more comments on a video, the better a video will do on YouTube. It'll appear higher in search results. It'll pre appear more frequently in recommended videos. So if you want to come and call us names on YouTube, go right ahead. You're going to be helping us and helping the channel and helping get our message out. So absolutely, please. And that applies to all interactions. You want to give us a thumbs up. You want to subscribe. You want to hit the notification bell. You want to comment below. You want to click a thumbs up on, on a comment. Any of that kind of stuff that actually it isn't about us or feeding our ego. It's telling the algorithm that this is a video worth watching. And so more people can find it and watch it. So anytime you can do that, it is greatly appreciated, even if the comment is critical. And if you have a critical comment, if it provides new information or another perspective, we absolutely value that. That is a big part of how we learn. But if it's just going to be insulting and name calling, you can still do it. It's still going to help us, but don't expect us to bother responding. And we're going to leave the comment up there because we believe in free speech and hearing from all sides. Um, but don't expect us to engage with that sort of um, insulting, confrontational, negative trolling behavior because it doesn't add anything to the conversation. We don't want to encourage that too much. She also says, honestly, one should never buy the stock if only for the OBC. That is a matter of opinion. People can buy stock for whatever reason they want. And the cost of stock is going to mean different things to different people. If you have plenty of money to throw around and the $5,000 plus it'll cost to buy 100 units of Carnival stock at whatever the prevailing price is, isn't much to you, but you really think the onboard credit is great. If that's your only reason, that's your choice. We don't begrudge you making the choice for that. Maybe you only buy the stock because you look at the dividend payouts. That's completely valid as well. Maybe you're just buying the stock as an asset to see and hope that it goes up. And when you sell it, you sell it at a higher amount than you bought it at and you make a profit that way. Any of those reasons. In fact, some people buy stocks for ethical reasons. There's a company that they believe in and they want to support because maybe they're doing things in a way that they want. Maybe it's uh, an environmentally sustainable way. Maybe it's free trade coffee. Maybe it's, you know, something that's addressing a social issue or a moral issue. 
Maybe it's a pharmaceutical company that's investing in research into a disease that you would like to see cured. There's a lot of reasons to buy stock, and people don't need to have one reason to buy stock. They can have, uh, you know, this part means that much to me, and this part means something to me. There's tons of reasons to do all that. You can invest in it just because you want to be a consumer of that company one day. Maybe it's somebody working on self-driving cars. And you'd love to have a self-driving car one day. That could be a fair reason to invest, even if you don't care about dividends, shareholder benefits, stock price, the morality of it. It might just be something that you want to see brought to market. And by investing in it, you're helping to do that so you can get that product one day. That's five different reasons right there that I've outlined for someone to buy any stock. And we're not going to tell you that any one is better than any other, but we want you to have the full story and know the risks when we encounter things that we think you may or may not be aware of. And that's all we're trying to say. Buy stocks for whatever reason you want. You can throw a dart at the wall if that's how you want to operate. It's completely up to you. Um, so she says she shouldn't have been disappointed. We can't tell people how to feel. I'm sorry, but I just don't think we can. Um, when a service is explained and advertised to be one way and it turns out to be something less, I think disappointment is a fair emotion to feel in that moment. Maybe not for you, and hey. That's fine. It takes all types to make the world go round. Uh, she basically goes on to continue saying that you should only ever buy stock because you think its value will go up for no other reason. I disagree. I think it's a valid reason. It can be some people's reason. It doesn't have to be everyone's reason every single time. You can buy stock for whatever reason you want. She says, actually, my daughter and her husband both own the stock, and on occasion, in circumstances where the two cabins are involved, for instance, uh, when he took his mother in a separate cabin, they booked uh, my daughter in one cabin and her husband in the mother's cabin, and they both got the stock OBCs. Um, and then once on board, they just went to their own cabin. So she's kind of talking about how to game the system here. Generally speaking, on Vacation Impossible, we try not to, to get you to do things that are against the policies of vacation properties we're not going to tell you how to cheat the system we're going to tell you how to maximize your advantage from the system because when you're found to be cheating a system there could be penalties that could come along and we don't want to be responsible for that and we don't want to lead you astray maximize the opportunities that you're legitimately able to claim this is one of the criticisms we get on our six flags video all the time is that we're not following the rules we're actually generally speaking very stringent rule followers but when the rules are unclear then that results in confusion. And it sometimes looks like maybe we're trying to cheat them when really the clear the rules weren't clear or they weren't available, they weren't made public enough, they weren't inf we weren't informed. And then after our experience, we try to help spread the word. We want to make it clear to people what the actual rules are. Um, so it, I think that if you're, if you're booking one cabin and then you don't spend any time in that cabin, I'm not sure of the exact rules with Carnival, but at the very least it seems misrepresentative to me. Uh, and also that seems problematic with the card because... Um, your sign, your sale and sign card is your room key, but it's also the thing you charge to. So how can you get into a cabin that's not yours without getting somebody else's sale and sign card? Um, but then are you're charging things to someone else's account? So I, I, I don't think that that I would not recommend that for those reasons, but I'm not going to condemn anyone who chooses to. Uh, I'm just going to express my opinion that I think that there's some risks there. If you choose to do that, try to understand those challenges and those risks in advance. And again, she says, everyone I know that cruises takes printouts of everything, whether or not they live in the digital age. 
In fact, cruise companies ask that you do that very thing. Cruise companies ask that you print out specific things. They want you to print out your boarding pass. There used to be a medical and pregnancy questionnaire. Even those are gone now. They're digital now. They just ask you or, you know, you do a thing on a tablet when you check in. They ask you for the check-in uh, and if you're, if you're checking luggage. But at no point had Isabella been told to bring a printout copy when she cruises. It had just never been communicated. So um, they don't say bring everything. Uh, you know, I could be screenshotting every step in the process. I could print out every email I'm given. I don't think any of those would provide any value. But we did learn the hard way that bringing proof that you're a shareholder, a printout of that does potentially um, offer some some comfort and help you resolve a situation that may occur. But I don't think you need to print absolutely everything. I, um, I, I, I think a lot of that would be superfluous. Uh, Diane goes on to say, I think what bothered me the most uh, about this was the way you presented it as though they were, as you put it, problems that exist and is it worth it? When there are actually no problems when done correctly, in my opinion, and many others, absolutely is worth it. So Isabella said that she didn't think it was worth it. She was thinking about it. And that was just her opinion. It's not the opinion of everyone else. And... Um, and she says there are no problems. I think not getting the credit you're entitled to after you follow all the steps that you've been told to follow, I think that's a problem. The fact that it hasn't happened to you means it's never been a problem for you. But the fact that it happened to someone else, it's real, it's true, it existed, I was there, I'm a witness. You can choose not to believe us, believe us if you want. Uh, that's on. That's up to you. Um, but the fact that a problem occurred, a problem occurred, and there's a possibility. Maybe it's one out of a thousand occurrence. We don't know. Uh, but we think people should have that information. We shouldn't just pretend it didn't happen. I don't think we'd be doing you any service if we swept every negative experience under the rug, like the spa experience or the Six Flags thing, um, you know, or the ant infestation we had at a different Hampton Inn. But Problems are important because they give companies an opportunity to improve things. They can improve service if they realize there's a gap and can address it, or at the very least, they can make it right with the customer and do something to, you know, show a gesture or to make them whole again or something like that. And so, for example, with the ant infestation that we had in Tampa, uh, they eventually made it right. And here I am once again staying at a Hampton Inn. So yes, problems exist. I think people as much as possible should hopefully know about the potential and the companies should resolve them when they happen. I don't think that's unreasonable, but again, that's just my opinion. I'm not telling anyone else how to live their life. I'm just giving them options to consider. Um, she says, if your target audience is no novice cruisers, the way you are all shaking your heads in disbelief and woe is me attitude about everything she said, none of them will ever buy the stock anyways. Um... Our target audience is pretty broad. Perhaps it's too broad. Maybe that's not why we don't have more success on YouTube. Because we believe everyone who's capable of being able to afford to travel however they can should hopefully do so. Do so as smart, as cheap, and as different as possible. That's what we're all about. So anyone who wants to travel, we welcome. Uh, we have our Carnival Cruise Basics uh, topics that we sometimes cover in the podcast and turn into YouTube clips for some people who have maybe only been on one or two cruises. But we also cover things where we talk about uh, the Platinum program and how that works and things of that nature uh, that would apply to people who are more experienced cruisers. And we try to provide value there. So we hope to have a broad audience. We try to welcome all people. Um, so we're, we're not just targeting novice people uh, or just experienced people. We're just targeting, hopefully, people of at least some modest means at bare minimum that are capable of being able to travel. 
Um, also, saying that uh, shaking our heads, heads in disbelief and woe is me attitude. Um, I can shake my head when I think something isn't right in that one instance. I can nod because I understand something. It doesn't mean that I'm giving my full endorsement to what's being said. Sometimes it's just meaning I understand, I follow you, I'm curious where this is going. Uh, so to say that everyone on that couch agreed with absolutely everything she said as some sort of endorsement is reading far too much into body language. Um, and this woe is me, I mean, that is, that's just insulting. Um, you're basically degrading a negative experience that someone else had and mocking them for it. And I don't think that's fair. I think if someone reached into your pocket and stole a couple hundred dollars that you would be, it would be acceptable for you to be a little annoyed about that, a little upset about that. And that's functionally an, another way of looking at what happened there. There was money that they should have had that they did not have for no fault of their own. They followed all the process and did everything they were told, and they were denied something that they were entitled to. Um, and so ag agreeing that that shouldn't have happened and that that's a bad thing, I don't think that means that we're saying, woe is me. I think we're saying a bad thing happened and we're acknowledging it. And I don't think there's a problem with acknowledging objective, observed, experienced reality. And we're not telling people not to buy the stock. We were just giving one person's expect uh, um, perspective. He said... One more thing, and this is for your benefit, because you said you were still on the fence. I had replied to her comment saying I was on the fence about buying the stock. Might be mistaken, but I assume you're referring to buying the stock. I was. Uh, even though they had this benefit for years, they vote on it once a year and could discontinue the benefit at any time. So there are no guarantees. And we understand that. You can also sell your stock at any time. So there's no guarantees of you holding long or beyond any particular date. But hopefully, if they made a change, they would let people know. And then you would have an opportunity to make an informed decision, which is what we're all about. She says, on the upside, there's a dividend of 50 cents per share four times a year. So that is an extra $200 per year. And again, uh, we freely acknowledge that the Carnival stock appears to have consistently paid dividends. And so I want to thank Diane for commenting on our video and providing her perspective. I may not have found all of the things that she said uh, totally agreeable, but she did provide some important counterpoints and she did give us this wonderful opportunity to issue a correction. One of the things that we do with this podcast is we often record on location and it's often on a cruise ship where we don't have access to the internet. So we're generally going on our recollections of things. When I edit the podcast, I try to fact check as I go. And if I find that we've said something that's factually untrue, I edit that part out of the podcast. Unfortunately, on this occasion, it wasn't until long after I published it and Diane commented that I realized that I had said something that wasn't entirely accurate. So I do apologize and I regret the error and we will correct these errors whenever something like this occurs and we do our best to prevent them from occurring, but we do appreciate the interaction with our fans even when it's critical. So I want to thank Diane for watching and uh, hopefully this, uh, this correction has clarified some things and uh, she can understand what we were trying to do. We were certainly by no means trying to badmouth a particular stock. We were not trying to manipulate its value. We weren't trying to convince people to buy it or not buy it. We were just trying to provide a perspective and additional information to help people make an uh, informed decision with a broad view. And they can absolutely ignore what we say at any time. Anyways, it is now officially July 23rd. It's a Monday. It's one in the morning. Um, and I am very tired. I hate to leave the podcast on what might have sounded like a little adversarial critical note, but unfortunately I am very tired. And so I'm going to be going to sleep now as I am headed home tomorrow.
Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you being here. We realize there's a wide variety of podcasts out there that you could be listening to, and we thank you for spending this time with us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, we can be found on a variety of platforms. However you're listening to us now, if you could please subscribe, that would be fantastic. We're also available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and a wide variety of podcast apps. So please uh, consider subscribing, and you can also find us on YouTube where we put uh, clips from the podcast, as well as a whole bunch of other videos, tip videos, destination videos, fun stuff, all sorts of things. Uh, and so that's youtube.com forward slash vacation impossible. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash vacation impossible. We have an Instagram where we are vacation impossible. We post a lot of pictures, things you might not see in the video, things you might not see on Facebook or elsewhere. We're also on Twitter, at VacayImpossible. Feel free to submit your topics for future podcast conversations. Use the hashtag VIPodcast or just tweet at VacayImpossible. We'll pick up your questions and your topics and do our best to answer them or cover the issue that you might want us to address at our very next opportunity. We really appreciate that. And you can also find us on a wide variety of other things. We're on a new social media platform called Vero, which is spelled V-E-R-O, and we're Vacation Impossible there we have a snapchat we're on Flickr. basically everywhere except twitter we are vacation impossible so uh, this has been great and thank you very much for listening and happy travels